Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio Free CR 855 on your AM dial. And I'm Sandrine Berges from Bill Kent University, Ankara. It is true that I never should have married, but I didn't want to live without a man. Brought up to respect the conventions, love had to end in marriage. I'm afraid it did. Bet Davis, The Lonely Life, 1962. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. And I'm speaking to Assistant Professor Helen McCabe, speaking about Harriet Taylor. Welcome to the program. Thanks very much. It's very nice to be on the program. Now, could you give us a bit of background information about yourself? Oh, yeah, I'm Assistant Professor of Political Theory at the University of Nottingham. I did my doctorate at the University of Oxford, and then I taught there for a bit, and then I moved to the University of Warwick, and I started at Nottingham just this last semester. My recent publications are on mainly on Mill's feminism, so I've got a piece called Good Housekeeping, Reassessing John Stuart Mill's position on the gender division of labour came out a couple of weeks ago in History of Political Thought, and one called John Stuart Mill and Fourierism, Association, Friendly Rivalry and Distributed Justice that came out in Global Intellectual History last week too. So my detailed research is on Mill and Socialism, which led me into studying Harriet Taylor Mill, and I wrote the Harriet Taylor Mill chapter for the recent Black World Companion to Mill that came out in 2016. So what was it that inspired you to study Harriet Taylor? So I was thinking about this, and I guess when I was 18 and I'd never done any philosophy before, I was going up to Oxford to study PPE, and we had to read some books before term started, and one of them was Mill's Utilitarianism. So I started at the beginning with the introduction, and I learned about Mill's tragic love life with Harriet Taylor, and the contrast between that and the fact that his philosophy is all about maximising happiness. Uh, is one of the things that really drew me to him on a kind of personal connection as well as being interested uh, in his philosophy. So I kind of always had an interest in Harriet Taylor and her role in, in his life and the adult of his work. And then I got interested in kind of puzzling claim Mill makes that he was a socialist, or he and his wife were socialists, when we think about him as being a founding father of liberalism. And I realised, studying that for my doctorate, that a lot of people who don't really want Mill to be a socialist blame it on Harriet Taylor. Somehow she was this radical communist who, through kind of exercise of sexual wiles, made Mill say things he didn't really mean. And then fortunately she died before he wrote On Liberty and he was released back into being a proper liberal. And I didn't find that very convincing, as you can probably tell. And that got me interested in studying her as an independent thinker, what was her view, and then thinking also about 
the interrelation between them and Mills claims that she co-authored a lot of his works because, well, yeah, being a woman in philosophy, there's not that many of us and there's definitely not very many famous ones in the history of philosophy. And I thought it looks like there's just been a massive injustice, really, by recognising her contribution to political theory. Could you describe Harriet Taylor's childhood? So not that much is known about her childhood. We don't have very many manuscripts or letters about her before she got married. Um, she was born in London into middle-class, relatively comfortable circumstances. Her father was called Thomas Hardy. He wasn't the famous novelist and poet. Um, he was an obstetrician, or as it was called then, a man-midwife. Her mother was also called Harriet. She had two siblings, um, Caroline and Arthur, and she was educated at home, like most women who got an education at the time. And I think that can mean that people think she's ill-educated or, or badly educated, which is ironic, really, given that Mill was infamously home-educated and many people would class him amongst the most intellectual people there's ever been. So what we can pick up of her early education, she was at least good enough uh, in French, Latin, German, Greek to quote in those languages and to write to Mill in French or at least read his letters in French. And she got by when she was travelling in France and Italy in later life. And she had at least a very good grounding in history. She might not have had a great grounding in grammar. When you read her letters, the sentences run on together. But I also think that might be part of the fact that she was writing with a quill pen. Our emails now aren't always very grammatical, and that's pretty easy with typing. I think sometimes we contrast the kind of rough notes that she's left us with the more polished published work that we think of as being Mills, and that seems a bit of an unfair comparison between their educations. Sometimes it's said that behind every great man there's even a greater woman. Do you think that was the case for Harriet Taylor and John Stuart Mill? Absolutely. I was glad you asked that question because I thought, oh, that's exactly the, the argument that I'm trying to make in my most recent work and in the thing I just had published in the Blackwell's Companion to Mill. I think that is, in fact, the opening line of my chapter. So, obviously, he was famous uh, as a social reformer, as this kind of educational experiment, as a writer in newspapers, as a campaigner for political and legal reform before he met Harriet Taylor. So she's not wholly responsible for Mill. I think we would still have heard of him, perhaps, or at least we wouldn't if we were historians, maybe, had he never met her. But in his, when he was in his mid-twenties, or uh, 20, so in 1826-27, the, the winter of that uh, year, he had what he calls a crisis in my mental history, where he just lost faith in the Benthamite upbringing that he'd previously had. He says, my life seemed to collapse around me, the foundations of everything that I thought I knew and believed in kind of mulled under his feet. And it was in the, while he was in the process of picking himself up after that, that he was looking for new influences, new ways of thinking. He hung out with Coleridge. He was friends with Thomas Carlyle and all these people that his dad and Jones Benson would really have disapproved of. And it was while he was doing that that he became involved with William Fox and a group of free-thinking atheists, really. And it was in Fox's congregation that he met John Taylor, who was Harriet Taylor's first husband. And that's how he met Harriet Taylor. And I think... She was really instrumental in giving him the confidence and some of the ideas with which to rebuild his life. She obviously had great faith in his abilities, as he had in hers, and she helped him to develop 
his own political theory, his own philosophy, and that's what made him the famous political theorist, famous philosopher, famous political reformer that we know today. So I think she showed him uh, not only that he did indeed have a capacity for emotion and for love and for happiness, that he was really doubting after his mental crisis, but he relied a great deal on her support and wisdom and insight and what, insight and what he calls genius in building up this new philosophy on the rubble of his childhood beliefs. He himself says over and over again in his work that it would have been a lot less original, that he might even have been a lot less liberal, and that he might not even have written a lot of it without her prompting and contribution. And he came to rely on her judgment and discussed all of his ideas with her in depth over many years of their friendship and then marriage. And as I say, Sykes was the co-author of many of his most famous pieces. So I think, yeah, in a range of roles, from organising the house through to editing manuscripts, through to being the genius that Mill thought he was translating to the public. Yeah, she really was the great woman behind this great man. And I guess what's perhaps particularly notable is not just that they had this relationship, which is rare in itself, but that Mill recognised it, um, which a lot of, I think a lot of great men maybe haven't done, and wanted to do his best to acknowledge it in her own lifetime, uh, and when that wasn't possible really, partly because of her husband still being alive, as much as he could when she was dead. What were Harriet Taylor's views on religion and how did these views affect her philosophy? So it's quite a complex question. I don't, not that much proof to, to give a full answer. But as I say, she first met her husband as part of this group of free thinkers associated with the Reverend William Fox. And it's clear at the very least that she didn't subscribe to any established religion, even the Church of England. Although later on in travelling on the continent with her daughter, Helen Taylor, Helen Taylor records how they enjoyed seeing the kind of spectacle of mass, enjoying the, the aesthetic of it and the music. Mill says when he first met her, she was free of any superstition, but he also says she had a very reverential mind. So it's kind of hard to tell how much of that God means there. He himself was brought up as an atheist. He said he was rare amongst everybody, really, that he never, ever had any belief in God. God is mentioned more in Taylor's work. She talks about providence quite a few times, so it isn't clear whether that's just a kind of turn of phrase. She says, oh, if I could be providence for a time to solve the problem for women in the world. So that might not really mean she believes in providence. Hard to see. But certainly there seems to be some quite personal kind of sense of wrestling with God and the forces of evil when her husband's dying of stomach cancer. And so I think perhaps we do see some of those ideas coming through in work Mill wrote later on religion, that letters we have show that she prompted him to write about, and she certainly thought there was a role for religion in social utility, about the sort of social glue, helping people to have moral outlooks, think about other people, work towards the general good. But it's not clear how much she thought that needed a supernatural element, or whether it could be what people she was interested in at the time, and Mill himself called the religion of humanity. And she was drawn to the ideas of some utopian socialists who do talk about the religion of humanity, and that's one of the things that she encouraged Mill to write about. Uh, but as I say, I do disclaim here, there isn't a sort of section of her work obviously dedicated to theology, and so it's kind of hard to piece together what she really thought about that. Sure. How did Harriet Taylor view motherhood for, for herself and generally? So, yeah, another complex question. She doesn't have a view where motherhood takes a central role in the sense of, say, Mary Wollstonecroft's view about Republican motherhood. But I, I think she does definitely think motherhood shouldn't be the only option open to women 
or motherhood and marriage, that there's a problem that women are told that motherhood and marriage are their only roles in life and should be their primary care in life, the one thing we live for. She thinks that it's wrong how little control women have over whether they become mothers once they're married. And she thinks that motherhood is a really big responsibility and people shouldn't enter into it lightly. And also that if you have entered into parenthood with somebody that you decide you don't want to stay married to, thinking about the repercussions for children is something that should be taken seriously when thinking about separating. Not that that means people shouldn't separate, but that, in fact, the thought that they might separate would be a reason for limiting families at least to be really very certain you're going to stay with your partner. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, and I'm speaking to Assistant Professor Helen McCabe about Harriet Taylor. Uh, Now, could you tell us about Harriet Taylor's publications and why she wasn't able to publish them under her own name, well, at least one of them? Yeah, so I think there was a problem for nearly all women in the 19th century. Publishing wasn't seen as something women should do. It was kind of putting yourself forward, and there was this very strong emphasis on women staying in the family circle, only being famous amongst their friends if they were famous at all, whereas with Violet in a mossy bank half hidden from the eye. It was okay for some some kind of novel writing, maybe. So Mrs. Gaskell is a, a contemporary of Harriet Taylor's. But so are the Brontes, and obviously, famously, they first had to publish under male names to have their work taken seriously. And Harriet's trying to write on serious political things. It was not seen as a dumb thing for women to write about that, the kind of issue she's tackling, women's rights, marriage, divorce, domestic violence, They're all seen as kind of not nice subjects for women to write about and then economic reform, legal reform, all seen as things that women are too stupid to have an opinion about, all of which, of course, is feeding into the kinds of things that said about women when we were campaigning for the vote here in Britain. There's also the other problem about the fact that she was very worried about her reputation, as she had to be. Women didn't have anything else but the reputations. She was living apart from her husband. There was rumours circulating all the time that she and Mill were having a sexual relationship, or they denied that uh, while her husband was alive. She was worried about the impact on her children and on her husband if she became notorious. So quite often, Mill wanted to credit Harriet Taylor, particularly, say, with the principles of political economy. And Mr. Taylor said, no, I'm not allowing you to put this dedication in the front. It will make you notorious. I think Harriet Taylor herself was worried about that as well, in later times, even when her husband was dead, that she said to Mill, no, no, don't say that, don't put my name on this. And I think that was in part because they were both very keen to have the work taken seriously, uh, to have as big an impact as possible on the public, and they knew that it would be much easier to do that just under Mill's name. And men are allowed to write about all sorts of stuff, aren't they? And it's not a distraction that they're a man, whereas it often is a distraction. A woman's gender is often a distraction. I know there's recently been furor of an interview with the new Prime Minister in New Zealand that all the questions were about when she got pregnant, whether she was ha- when she was having the baby, all kind of personal questions that wouldn't have been asked to a male Prime Minister. So it still seems true today that women's gender is a distraction from their political programme, and I think Harriet Taylor did her best to just avoid that. The one key thing, obviously, is her enfranchisement of women from 1851, and that was published anonymously, 
but I think it was relatively well known, at least in kind of men class circles, that she had written it. I know that because Charlotte Bronte knew that Harriet Taylor had written it and said some really nasty things about uh, how unwomanly it was for a woman to have written the enfranchisement, which really upset Mill when he read about them shortly after Harriet's death. So, given the reaction to that, I think you can see why she didn't try and publish more on her own, perhaps, because there was a very negative reaction, not particularly to the content, though that was radical, but to the fact that a woman had written it. In your opinion, what was Harriet Taylor's intellectual strengths? So, I'm going to follow Mill a bit here and say, because he knew her best, right? Uh, he says that her really key strength was piercing to the very heart and marrow of the matter, always seizing the essential idea or principle that really mattered. And so, again, in this pair of essays they wrote to each other in the 30s, both called on marriage, Taylor says, if I could be provident to the world for a time, I'd come to, to, to raise the position of women in society. I'd come to you to find the means, but the idea would be to end all interference with expression of affection. And I think that gives us quite a good view of this. She sees what the issue is, social control of women, social control of our expressions of affection between free and consenting adults. But she says, can't work out how to solve that. And she saw that as mill strength. He says that she could imaginatively invest the strength of her own feelings into people in imaginary circumstances. And that gave her a real strength in working out whether social reforms would really work, whether people would really do these things or whether they would collapse because of kind of elements of human nature. And that's one of the things that he says made her kind of more bold in some of their speculations than he might have been, and then more practical in thinking about how it would really work than he might have been. And so I think those are two key strengths she had about envisaging possibilities of social reform and then also envisaging whether they would really work. The other element is that she has a real intellectual insight into the actual systemic nature of women's oppression. I think we can think of her as kind of a relatively early identifier of the patriarchy, of the social construction of gender, of how women's education forces us into thinking that only some things are possible for us, only some things are morally legitimate for us to be, namely marriage and motherhood and kind of being in love and being beloved, kind of, and a focus on our personal appearance, not our kind of intellectual or moral worth. And that, I think, is kind of, yeah, a real skill she has, that she saw a whole host of problems or kind of social realities that, as they really are. So what form of feminism would you say Harriet Taylor subscribed to? And so that's a really interesting question, especially as we kind of have to import labels back through time a bit because there weren't forms of feminism for her to subscribe to at the time. She's one of the first feminists has been, or at least been in, in Europe. So I think we tend to think of her as a liberal feminist because she, well, especially if she wrote or co-wrote On Liberty, right? Famous text from on liberalism. And because she focuses in a lot of the written published work, certainly enfranchisement of women, on legal formal rights like the vote, on rights to divorce and rights to property. But that, I think partly that's a, a bit of a simplistic reading of liberal feminism, perhaps anyway, but also I think there are many more radical elements to, to Taylor's work. So there's the identification of gender as a social construct that... It's women's education that make women nothing to do with their biology, that 
Uh, there are oppressive social structures that prevent women from entering the, the workplace that stop them being treated fairly there. So there's a really acute assessment of power, how power works, how power influences people, how power is used to oppress women and, and also the labouring classes. And so I think there are definitely some kind of more radical feminist strands to her thought, although perhaps it's a bit anachronistic to think of her as a radical feminist because she died in the 1850s. What was Harriet Taylor's legacy? And um, so I think it depends on what you think she authored Mill's book. So if you take his word for it, and I'm, I'm hoping to write a much bigger project on this, and she really did co-author On Liberty, Principles of Political Economy, Subjection of Women, Utilitarianism, then her legacy is huge, right? It's as big as Mill's, and that's a pretty big legacy, founding liberalism, um, radicalizing utilitarianism, changing the course of, of uh, how we study economics. So there's that, there's that element, I think, of saying, well, her legacy is Mill's legacy as well. But I think there's also a legacy of being a woman writing philosophy and, you know, and economics and politics and an inspiration to people to do that, and particularly an inspiration to not only Mill, but to her daughter, Helen Taylor, who was a real force for the campaign for women's education in Britain in the 19th century, late 19th century. And I think, although a lot of Harriet Taylor's work wasn't published until like, the 1990s, actually, except for what comes out under Mill's name. Her enfranchisement room was influential and was useful to people who were campaigning for women's votes in the 19th century and into the early 20th century. So that, I think, forms part of the legacy as well. Yeah, that's very interesting, saying about her her daughter and how she Mm. went on to do so much in education. That's that's Mm. certainly a very big part of her legacy, isn't it? It is, yes. And I think also the fact that Harriet encouraged Helen's education at home. Helen was also home-educated, mainly by Harriet Taylor. And then in what's actually a pretty radical move for the time, Harriet, despite some initial qualms, really supported Helen's ambitions to be an actress, which, of course, was a really not-done thing for middle-class girls, right? And particularly middle-class girls whose mums had a kind of slightly socially difficult legacy of being, you know, separated from their husband. It was already thought that actresses are prostitutes, basically. So this seemed even kind of worse. I think you can see why Harriet was worried about Helen going on the stage. She went on the stage under a, under a stage name. But then we have a, a whole slew of letters between them where Harriet is really engaged with Helen's career, helping her to get oh, everything, helping her to get lodgings, helping her to think through a costume, helping to get a, I guess what we'd call internships now with famous other female actresses and helping to keep it quiet that uh, she really was on the stage, which Helen wanted, I think, by protecting her kind of pseudonym and pretending that she was travelling with Helen to the continent, even in her final illness. And then I think it's, it's, partly, it's partly no, but it's also Harriet's commitment to women's education. So much of the stuff is about the importance of proper education for women. That did inspire Helen Taylor to go on and campaign for that. She was relatively early elected to the board of um, schools in London, which was one of the few things women could do because there was no actual legislation saying they couldn't. And then she was involved in other campaigns for women's colleges in Oxford and then obviously for the vote as well. Yeah, not just the, the education element, but also her that she was very open-minded yeah. with her daughter as well. That's an incredible yeah. legacy for the time, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of women now who wouldn't be happy about their daughters going off to be actresses. 
a long way away from them. You know, it's a kind of difficult business. It's not very fast to secure. Um, what do you do afterwards? And obviously, there's a worry. Not that I think Harriet thought Helen should get married, but there'd certainly be an issue about whether anybody would think she was respectable in later life. And the kind of I think it's an interesting contrast between the worries that she and Mill had about whether he could join her when she separated from her husband and gone to Paris, whether they stayed together unmarried in Paris, even though it made them blissfully happy, this would destroy any chances that he had for a political career and for both their ideas to be influential on society. And really, Helen's wearing the same risk going off to be an actress, and yet, you know, after some initial qualms, I think everyone's mum might have, that Harriet gives her a full support, even though she must have known that Helen wanted to make kind of social difference as well. She must have had ambitions for her daughter to make a, a kind of social difference given her and Mill's um, commitment to changing the world and improving society. So do you have any future study plans? Yeah, so as, as I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm hoping to be writing a book. I'm just, I'm just kind of planning it at the minute and I've given a couple of conference papers on different chapters of it and giving a, another paper next week on the same thing about what was Taylor's role in writing what we now think of as Mill's work that he's very keen to say was their work. So kind of taking seriously what he says in the autobiography, tracing out the different roles, kind of seven or eight different roles Harriet Taylor played in the construction of Mill's texts from discussing ideas with him and editing finished works through to writing chunks of, discrete chunks of the book through to properly co-authoring kind of every line of On Liberty. And then it's interesting to think also about the posthumous contribution she made because quite a lot of things Mill published after her death. It looks like they'd been writing at least partially in manuscript form before she died. So this kind of 1859 cut-off, 1858-59 cut-off isn't necessarily what we should see as the end of her influence on his work. And then separately, in kind of kind of moving away from history political thought, I'm currently leading a project with the Wrights Lab Beacon of Excellence at the University of Nottingham regarding forced marriage. And one of the first things I'm doing with that project is to look at Harriet Taylor, Mills, William Thompson, Anna Wheeler, Mary Wollstonecroft's identification and analysis of marriage as a form of slavery, and looking at why they thought that and the extent to which that's still true for women in forced marriages across the globe today. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the programme today. Oh, thank you very, very much for inviting me. And I've been speaking to Assistant Professor Helen McCabe, speaking about Harriet Taylor. Well, that's all we have time for today. Hope you've enjoyed the program. I've certainly enjoyed your company. 